Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Crush Organics CBD Oil. Are you an anxious person? Are you an overthinker? Are you a bad sleeper? I was all of those things, but I started uh, with Crush Organic CBD Oil, started with their everyday oil, then I moved up to the platinum, and now look at me go, I'm on the diamond oil they have CBD oil products for pets. They have gummies. They have everything, everything you could possibly need. If you haven't tried CBD oil, Crush Organics is the place to get it. Uh, if it's your first time, just try two or three drops to begin with. But everyone who's tried it absolutely loves it. I use it every day. CrushOrganics.com. Crush with a K. Use the code Neil for 40% off. CrushOrganics.com. We also have subscriptions available for this podcast. All the money from the subscriptions goes straight to charity. Change that up a little bit. I think I mentioned that on the last podcast, but I will mention it again. $50 a month if you want Jordan and I to answer a topic of yours. Uh, $15 a month if you want us to answer a question. And now for $5 a month, we'll do a shout out. So if you want a business, shout it out. Your socials, maybe you're an artist, maybe you have a product. Or maybe you're just a cool guy and you just want us to shout you out. We will do that. Yeah. For $5 a month. Five bucks a month. Get it done. It's a good price. And that is like, yeah, are you worth five? Are you $5 worth a legend? Are you, is your name, is us saying your name worth $5 a month? Of course. You know what is like a really, like, that 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 sell is as ridiculous as it is true. What you're not worth five bucks a month? Well, okay, that's sad. <laughs> you're the boss of you. <laughs> sad. Sorry for you, mate. What are you two two dollars fifty a month? <sighs> Less than an Eagle Boys pizza, eh? That's pretty pathetic. Is that how much an Eagle Boys pizza is? Don't you reckon? Do they still exist? All, no, Christ, no. Mm. They got bought out, I think, by Pizza Hut. I hope to God they were. They were always the weaker of the three. And you know when Domino's came out with $5 pizzas and you thought, well, this is a game changer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I am in uni, uni and I can afford to eat pizza. What the hell is going on? And then to compete with that, Eagle Boys came out with a $3 pizza and then it was just like, Ooh. same thing as this. Are you worth that? Don't you reckon $3 is way too little? It's just... There's a point where something becomes too cheap. Yeah, and it, it feels it, wrong. Even as a cheapskate, you think, nah. No, it's not worth that. No, I can't <laughs> stoop this low. I think the price point was $5. That was it. Yeah. $4 after that. What's wrong with this pizza? Yeah, yeah. You're going out of business. You're going out of business. This is the sale to try and uh, win back some uh, brand favor, but it's just not working. Do you remember? There was a, there was another one there for a while, Pizza Haven. I was a fan of Pizza Haven. I always thought that that just gave a nice Aussie spin to a clearly American enterprise that was Pizza Hut. But I think right. So that's th- what it was. It was the Australian version. Wasn't didn't Domino's start off as an Australian franchise and then go to America? Is that true? I know Sizzler did. I don't know about Domino's. And now Sizzler doesn't even exist in Australia anymore. Not in Sydney. No. What a disaster! That is a it disaster. Is, that sucks. I love that place. 
yeah, well, I, I know exactly the one that you went to as well. And that is just, it's got to be the happiest sizzler in Australia because all the rest of them are in like Toowoomba and Parramatta. Mm-hmm. Right on the highway next to the St. George Leagues Club. Great memories as a child getting that cheesy garlic bread. No, yeah. cheese toast. Yeah, getting getting to the dessert bar first. Oh, those were the days. And of course, all the potato skins you could eat, which turns out is not that many before you start feeling sick. They're really oily. Because I just had it the other day at Toowoomba before it closed down. And it was just like, there's so many flies around this salad. You should have closed mm. down. Was that the final sizzler in, in Australia? Like and and going shouldn't it have been? Don't you reckon? <laughs> Toowoomba is, should have been the last bastion. Because it makes... Okay, for their business model, they actually need... No. I think what happened is people's appetites grew larger and they couldn't afford to continue giving people all-you-can-eat buffets. Because for them to actually be profitable, they would ideally want people purchasing the all-you-can-eat buffet, but then not actually eating that much. Mm. So that rel- would be the ideal business model. Relatively, they make money then. Well, well. So it makes it hard to believe that the last one survived in Toowoomba. Mm. So you've done shows there, yeah? No, I've never done Toowoomba. Yeah, it's Australia's Texas. It's a lot of fat cars. So it makes look. It makes perfect sense that it would be the last end, but it would just be a very parasitic lifestyle where I'd imagine that you'd always just be running just above profit margins. And also for a place like Toowoomba, mm-hmm. just as Aussie as it gets, there was a lot of Indonesians working there, which always made me think, mm. "Show me your visa." <laughs> Actually, like, how is it this? Over exaggerated with immigrant workers, specifically at this sizzler. What are you doing in Toowoomba? And so I think that there was all these like things that they obviously had to do to just cut back to just scrape by. Like I really, I was there, and I remember being there for other girls that came up for a show mm-hmm. of mine that I was doing in Toowoomba, and I didn't realize that they were there for that. But they were the only other customers. So the only customers at Sizzler were there for a joke. Like, how long can that last? <laughs> like, even when Toowoomba's sitting there being like, you should be fucked for me. How do you feel if you're one of those uh, immigrant workers coming from Indonesia and you just want to give your family a better life and you want to have meaning and purpose and you are making cheesy toast for really fat Australians? <sighs> You can see. I did it. <laughs> I'm ruining the Western dream. <laughs> Surely selling fried chicken on the side of the road is better. I really I, I think anything is better than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty low. It's pretty low. <laughs> Working at an all you can eat buffet. You know, that's the height of uh, Western degeneracy. You know what else is weird? Sizzler, apparently, Mm -hmm. uh, when it first started out in the 80s, it was a place of high end. It was like a high end family bistro. It was all you can eat, but the all you can eat was a tray full of steaks and lobsters and Alaskan crab. Wow. And then everybody complained about the price, hmm. and so they put it down, and then everyone said, oh, yeah, but now all the food shit. So well, it was just doomed to fail from the beginning. It was So it started off as Alaskan crab, 
and ended up with cheese toast. Wow. (laughs) What a slide. (laughs) Because you know what? Like, really, dairy is a waste product. There is just mountains of butter in the US just sitting around rotting. Cheese, milk. (laughs) They just, they produce too much of it. And that's your like pri- right. that's your primary food. Now. So so any 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 like consumer food that you can market as something yummy uh, through like the waste product of what is already waste agriculture. Fuck. Because all dairy is a lot of dairy comes from uh, like the the orifices of animals. Mm. I don't know. I watched the vegan documentary once. Don't know how true that is, but. <laughs> You're then taking that and making it into something even more wasteful, probably adding copious amounts of corn syrup and sugar and extra milk for some reason, (laughs) soy, (laughs) artificial flavors, and then it's all about the marketing. (laughs) (laughs) I reckon food giants just give themselves a challenge. They get like the shittiest possible product. And they're like, hmm, can we market this and make millions of dollars? Yeah, I think that that'd be the aim, wouldn't it? You would want to be getting utter shit. Mm. You want to be getting it. God, that, you're right. Like there, there is a true art to that. Yeah, cost effective, right? Hello. You're saying this tobacco. There's so many. Yeah, you're right. There's so many products out there that are just huge, needlessly inflated margin. Obviously, Alaskan king crab is not one of them. That is really difficult to get. It's Alaskan. always it's always weird thinking about that while you're eating an Alaskan king crab and just being like, a guy definitely lost his hand to give this to me. And I'm not willing to pay more than 50 bucks. No, no. Not worth it. I heard lobster isn't even a delicacy. It's actually, I think it was like marketed as a delicacy and it became a delicacy. Well. I heard that somewhere. It is now, but mm. yes, back in the day, it was peasant food. In fact, uh, fishermen used to just, because they just caught so much of it, they used to just feed it to chickens. It was chicken food. Wow. They used to grind it up and then just sell it to farmers as just in big bags. Right. So the... the Damn, how does the... How does the... That agriculture economy work... All right, we need to catch lobsters, grind them up, and feed them to the animals that we're then going to kill and give to humans. It really just shows you how cheap wow. and abundant lobsters were. So there's even but, an animal hierarchy in human agriculture. Oh, yeah. That exists for sure. Ugh. Like it's one oh, thing no. to be a domesticated animal. But then to be at the bottom of the hierarchy of domesticated animals. <laughs> Making this Rough. really fucked, weird circle of life that, like, chickens shouldn't exist in the first place. And then feeding chickens something from the ocean. Yeah, we've truly fucked the. Yeah. That is. Unbelievably unnatural, isn't it? <laughs> it's it is so bad. But you know what? It's it's a credit to our species. Yeah, our tastes, our our food desires have changed the makeup of the global 
animal ecosystem based on what we feel like eating we've changed the entire animal hierarchy that's pretty boss he's pretty boss and is also test of it like cuz now that i think about it that would be a pretty delicious combo chicken infused lobster <laughs> not bad not bad Wait, and it also shows Wait. isn't that amazing that lobster is so much more expensive now still not better than chicken so are you saying that the chicken is stuffed with lobster or the other way around? Yeah, no, the lobster, sort of, right? Like the lobster is, if you're feeding it nothing but lobster, uh, yep, yep, it's, yep. In, it's, it has to have some lobster flavor somewhere to it. It has to do something to its molecular structure at some point. If that's all it's lived off its entire life, it's the same as just like really high-end beef, how they just feed it certain grains. There's a reason yeah. for that, right? So- now I'm kind of just sad that we'll never be able to taste that ever because I would like to know the difference. But I am pretty amazed that probably one of the cheapest, easy-to-produce meats there is, which is chicken. It just – it really, like – any time I've ever had beef, pork – I just don't have them anyway, and I feel slack because, like, they're just too smart and close to us. But, like, every time I'm having that, my, my initial thought is always, like, I should have got the chicken, you know? Like, sometimes when it's this fish – you just feel better, so you think, no, no, I made the right choice because okay. it's, it, it's a better thing. But like beef, pork, lamb, it all just feels way too heavy afterwards. And like, are you on board with this? Do you think that just birds taste better? I've been um, plant-based for the last two and a half months, so mm. uh, I'm off all of them. But out of the options you've said, no. I'd I'd go. I reckon beef is better than chicken. You're a fan of that? Yeah, chicken is very dry. Yeah, and you need it with something. Mm. I can actually eat a steak um, or beef with like very limited sauce or just some vegetables, but like mm. chicken and broccoli. That's what you eat when you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to get gains. But man, it's so dry. It can be stringy. Not a fan. Yeah, but okay, that's, I that's love eggs. really not a good example, though, because that you're talking about, like, broiled chicken, right? What chicken are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about, you know, like, we're talking about the best beef you can get in the best. Because if you're just but boiling you reckon- a chicken breast, that's yeah. going to suck ass. Yes. That's going to be is. really bad. But like, okay, really bad. You, <laughs> is that all you've been eating? Because that's the last time you could remember chicken because you were trying to bulk. Uh, yeah, I was in, I had like some little bit of ginger on it or something, but right. it was basically, uh, unspiced. But what about something like, I don't know, Lebanese chicken, bros? You know that like- Yeah, but all meat tastes good when you add the right sauce. Mm. Otherwise it doesn't really, even when I said the beef, look, I can eat the beef by itself, but you need, really it's the sauce that, or the vegetables that taste good. And then the meat is the addition. You know what's weird? You're right, and you've probably noticed this with your plant-based diet. And this is like my diet's always just been about like 95% plant-based, but you don't miss it. No, you actually don't. You don't, and it, the, you realize so the vegetables far. absorb more flavor mm. than meat does. Meat just tastes like meat every time. Like you, mm. you can do things to it to slightly change it, but at the end of the day, it's still a it's still beef. Mm. 
but you could really morph the flavors of vegetables a lot. And on top of that, as you probably notice, like you just feel a lot better, don't you? They have flavor in themselves. Get up. That was cool. I like that cat vision. What? Oh, yeah. It zooms in. It focuses in on, on Shaudi. Yeah. She's hungry. I do. I still am contributing to uh, animal agriculture, aren't I? Well, she is. Yeah, well, she can't not. I've never. I remember yeah, actually some... this. Mum tried to put her dogs when she, in the 70s on one of those vegan diets. In the she, 70s? Yeah, she took it off. About... Oh, she was ahead of her time. Well, this is the whole thing. Everything's been sort of cyclical since the 70s. All of these kind of Byron yeah, Bay types, really. True. What the fuck's changed? I have an iPhone now to document it. Yeah, yeah. And they're saying people. The 60s were all about the uh, yeah, rekindling with Eastern philosophies and uh, free love, polyamory. Speaking of. Just with more testosterone. Speaking of. The 60s or open marriages? The 60s. This will interest you a lot, Neil. Yeah. This is about Steve Bannon. But I don't think that you can explain the situation that the world is currently in without knowing the contribution that that man has made. It's truly phenomenal. But it all actually goes back to the 60s, I think it was the 60s, with this guy called Abby Hoffman, who was sort of the original Steve Bannon. And he wrote this book called Revolution for the Hell of It. I haven't read it yet. In fact, burn this book. You know the thing that Dave Rubin did of don't burn this book? Mm -hmm. Burn this book was Abby Hoffman's book. Okay. But you know what's very interesting about hippies? And this is something that I've never noticed or, or thought about when it comes to politics ever before. He made hippies... I'm trying to think of another word here. Can't just... All right, all right, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to use it against my will. He made hippies left-wing... If you think about it, okay, okay. Because really, okay, let's let's just zoom back for a second. Let's just define that very quickly. They're not exactly so. Really, can I just jump in there? They're not exactly espousing uh, the theories of Karl Marx or anything like that. They're actually quite anti-states, and uh, in many ways, you could say they 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 they're living out a libertarian philosophy. They're just sort Aren't of they? in communities by themselves and. Uh, working together, and I think le left libertarianism or something like that. I don't think they really have a overall political philosophy, but uh, it was all very sort of uh, uh, Afrocentric and Eastern in in its uh, philosophy. And yeah, I, I can't see how it really relates to trade unions or anything like that. No, yeah, isn't that phenomenal? Like I, I, I always had this loose connection in my mind because my mum's a hippie. And I was always just thinking, like, there's really not that much difference between her and Alex Jones. You take away a few cultural things, like him waving himself in the flag. They both hate fluoride. They're both really uh, paranoid about vaccines. 
Uh, they're really anti the man. They're very conspiratorial. They have that Why? same weird, like outlier mindset, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Really pro drugs. There's like, I, I swear, every Alex time I look a- at my mum, I always just think you would be Alex Jones if you were a fat Texan man. Alex- like- Is Alex Jones pro drugs? He's one of those guys. I don't care what you put inside your body. I just want you to have the choice you do it. You know, like he's oh, okay. one of those people. Okay. Yeah, right, right. Classic, just don't tread on me philosophy, which is exactly mm. the same as hippies. They just sort of express it as we're saying, like culturally different. But in terms of uh-huh. what's guiding them and how they see how like society should function. Uh, they're, they're sort of one in the same person. They're kind of, I guess, free spirits. They're really animated by that general concept of freedom and not conforming. And mm. they both have a uh, very contrarian impulse. They want to uh, go against and, and rebel. Um, yeah, like anti the norm and anti the state and like you say, anti man, anti the man, anti authority. Yeah, anti authoritarian. I think that might be a better way of putting it. There's, there's a anti. Yeah, they're, they're anti authority and they do have this natural inclination to just buck whatever is in front of them. Hmm. They're they're both counterculture in their own way. Yes, because the original hippies. <laughs> We're not following a trend. They were, at least insofar as I'm aware. I know throughout history there have always been groups of vagabonds and uh, bohemians that uh, have uh, uh, detached themselves from society at large and gone their own way and lived in communes, but it was very pronounced with the hippie movement of the 60s. Mm. There was nothing, uh, uh, I suppose, it definitely wasn't conformist. And... It was a very strong movement. It was loud. It was boisterous. It wasn't how you would define stereotypically the cultural left today, which is all about I need to be protected. I need to uh, be my uh, my feelings and my uh, victimhood needs to be uh, made significant. Which is very interesting because... That line of thinking kind of just came from a combination of, I guess, French intellectuals and really a bunch of, again, lack of a better word, Karens. A bunch of upper middle class, well-off women getting into positions of power in universities and bringing that sort of paranoid upper-class attitude. Well, there's a very infamous um, conversation between Jordan Peterson and uh, Camille Parlier. Uh-huh. She goes into the quite an interesting depth about this topic. Right. Uh, she talks about how the hippie movement has absolutely nothing to do with the cultural left of today. And as you say, it was this sort of bourgeois uh, upper-class bureaucracy that uh, was growing within education and just within uh, corporations and uh, institutions in the West. 
And really, there's there's actually no connection there because you think of a hippie, someone having orgies at Woodstock, doing copious amounts of drugs and uh, living this very sort of vagabond free lifestyle. That's absolutely nothing like what uh, you'd associate with a lefty today. No. Isn't that really odd? It was... That's which which is really interesting because it's kind of just the, these identities just get lumped onto a sort of political movement and become a driving force behind it, which is where Bannon comes in because Bannon and studying Abby Hoffman, studying revolutions, understood, and this is like a, a phrase that is sort of well-known now, which is the culture, politics flows downstream from culture, which is that, like, if you're able to adopt a movement that is happening and then inject your own politics into it, like, identify what these emerging new cultures are, you can just place your politics into it, which is what you were saying the other day, which just freaked me out because I was thinking about it more after reading this book about Bannon. And how you were just saying that, like, conservatism is counterculture now. I don't know if it really is anymore, to be honest. I felt like in 2016, 17, it, 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 it was, was when it was on 4chan and it was broadly described as this alt-right thing. But now you just go through any boomer's Facebook feed and they're espousing similar sort of views in it's a not far cool. less nuanced way. Uh, so I don't really know what counterculture is now. Maybe centrism. I don't know, or maybe even uh, economic leftism. Uh, I, 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 it's hard to say what counterculture is. Social conservatism could still be perceived as counterculture. Being a Christian and just openly, unabashedly uh, proclaiming your faith in God is in some ways counterculture because it's so frowned upon in, in cultural circles, in artistic circles. But don't you think that if something is going to be counterculture, and this is what I thought was particularly amazing about Bannon, you've just correctly identified that. It's no longer cool, but it was in 2016. We'll get back to that. But what I think is particularly remarkable about what Steve Bannon did with Trump's campaign is that there really doesn't seem to be a mainstream culture anymore. It really doesn't seem to, or, or it's like it's very, very weakened. And the idea that there's even a counterculture, what is that? If there's no culture, if there's no mainstream culture, what's the counterculture? Like it was really obvious in the 80s, right? It was either just like you wore mullets, you had a car that had the doors that went if you're in the mainstream. You liked Michael Jackson. And if you didn't, you liked things like the dead Kennedys. You were, you, you were, you were a punk. There's those two things that were there. But as you're saying, like, what is it? Maybe Christianity, like maybe Hillsong, maybe. But it's just like that's kind of just one avenue. That it's, but it's not sure. like a, a big and movement. Also, and it's also hard to uh, describe that as counterculture when people in positions of political power are still uh, fervently in favour of that worldview. I suppose I'm talking just uh, as someone in their late 20s in artistic circles I was talking to a comedian, Alex, who does a ethical hypothetical show with me, and he was talking about how another comedian uh, has always been a Christian. He recently got married, and he just 
got up on stage and started doing jokes about his Christianity and his faith. And it was, in a weird way, rebellious because he's performing those jokes in an inner-city Sydney audience to uh, what can only be assumed as a secular, uh, culturally left-wing, high degree of LGBT audience. And there's something rebellious about that. There's something uh, true stand-up comedian about that. Ironically enough, it was George Carlin um, being stridently atheist in the in the 90s or whether he was, I don't know what his personal views were, but he was definitely anti, he made a lot of uh, jokes about Christianity. But after a while, that no longer becomes counterculture. When everyone agrees with you, there's nothing edgy about that. There's nothing interesting about what you're saying but what was he saying in his jokes about christianity uh i don't actually i didn't see the set i just heard that uh he did it and there one other comedian was saying well are you sure you want to do that and he Mm. said why why does it matter i'm just gonna do it i think he was doing one joke where he was talking about where why he couldn't see someone on a sunday and he's like oh i'm seeing a guy and is he is he well known? Is he popular? Yeah, yeah, he's pretty popular. Just things like that. Like it's, it's pretty funny actually when not you bad, think about it like that. Yeah, like. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't I didn't actually see the set. But again, I, I was more firmly entrenched in that belief. In in yeah, 2016 seems to be the year that really uh, the the culture scape shifted dramatically. But that was when I thought, okay being anti-SJW, being on 4chan and being a cultural conservative was edgy and counterculture. Now I don't, I don't really know if it is. Well, this is the amazing thing that Steve Bannon figured out and this is why what he did was just such a huge, massive accomplishment. I was to take you back a little bit more to it, but it all started with and I can't remember exactly what he wanted to do to this, but it was something to do with World of Warcraft because before that, you know, he was like a producer on Seinfeld. I didn't know that. I knew he had a radio show. Radio show, producer on Seinfeld, very successful investor. Um, okay, so he's clearly a very intelligent man. Very smart man. Mm. And he, when he was doing something with World of Warcraft, I think he was trying to do something to just fuck it up and scam people that were playing it so he could get more money out of it with, I don't know, just skin upgrades or whatever it was. Okay. And he realized that the nerds figured out what was happening and they kind of game stopped him. They just completely fucked his entire business model and sent that business bankrupt. And instead of going, you know, getting really pissed off, he realized, holy fuck, these autists are so powerful they can take when when they're pissed off they can take down entire banks like you you know like (coughs) banking empires can just crumble before them uh they're allowed to just completely manipulate the stock market they can hack into government sites they're extremely smart angry aimless kids and he, he recognized that that was sort of what 
the hippie movement was in the 60s, that the hippie movement didn't really have a political direction. And then Abby Hoffman came in and he started giving it a shape. And like what you were saying before, right? Like you really hippies and trade unions shouldn't have gone together, but they did. And that was because he injected that into them. And so he started to realize this is the engine of cultural change now. He realized that there is just this mass unconsciousness that doesn't really have a direction of all of these geniuses put together in this computer that have just made this giant mind that when directed can do cause the biggest political upset in American history. Like no one was expecting Trump to win. The only, this is incredible as well, reading about it. Everyone in Trump's campaign, even Trump thought, nah, we're done. There's no chance this is happening. Yeah. Steve Bannon was just going through some of the, um, data that they were picking up from Cambridge Analytica and he started realizing no okay we're just going to keep hitting he, he was saying the way that we win this and this is something that I distinctly remember as well about 2016 the way that we win this is yeah okay Trump's got a rabid fan base it's not mainstream it's the counterculture fan base that's behind him the way that we counter that with Hillary Clinton having just all this mainstream appeal behind her which i suppose actually is the amazing thing about it as well is that like that man both was responsible for creating the counterculture and the mainstream culture because really the whole time and you don't really notice this until you go back on it hillary clinton's campaign was on the back foot the entire time hillary uh, uh, trump's campaign was just so aggressive constantly pushing ground just like doing really shocking shit that just wasn't the convention the first um campaign manager that he had second campaign manager that he had actually his campaign manager was just trying to manage decline. He was just thinking, we're going to lose this. Let's just try and lose with some dignity because there was just a sort of unconscious White House convention because he was just an establishment type where he just started to think, no, this is how this pans out. We've, we've lost the campaign in advance. So uh -huh. now we're just going to try and save as many seats as we can in Congress and the Senate. That, that was his mindset. Steve Bannon came along and he was just like, no, what we're going to do is we are going to make it so that when you think of Hillary Clinton, you want to throw up. And it's true. Like, I cannot remember a presidential candidate that on a personal level, I felt such like a repulsion to in my lifetime. There was just this natural repulsion of just like, ugh. Uh -huh. and, and that didn't exist prior to her running for president because there was a lot of distrust. Uh, people were fed up with the eight years of the Obama administration where there had been so much positive rhetoric about hope and change. And he ran as essentially a moderate Republican. He uh, didn't really bring about this hope and change. There was a lot of outsourcing and... Uh, the fundamental structure of America economically didn't really change. And Hillary was tainted with that, wasn't she? How did he further exacerbate the revulsion towards Hillary? Because the thing is, the things that you're identifying there was more of like a Bernie Sanders ticket. And Trump identified that as well. And that was his contribution to the campaign. What 
Bannon started to add to it was there was always these underlying conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation. Look, I don't know how true or not they are because I've never really looked into it, but I do know that it was this core group of outsiders that just for whatever reason really hated specifically Bill and Hillary Clinton. They just fucking despised them specifically. It was this group of just like very fixated nuts that Steve Bannon looked at and realized like, we can make this story go national. And then you started seeing all of that stuff that you, I remember it. Like I remember the three ways that it went. There was the, there was the first wave with his first campaign manager that was just a Trump loyalist that just enabled him to do whatever he wanted. And it had a real Trumpian flavor to it, which is kind of just like, this is funny. This is like a bit of a joke. He's got some good points though, but he's a bit of a crank and like, nah, he's not going to win, you know? And then there was just this point where he was just like really not going to win, where Hillary Clinton was just trouncing him in the polls. And that was because the next campaign manager that they had was was campaigning for him to lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it got into the Bannon territory and then it was just like, you know, just being like, well, I'm scared of Trump, but fuck Hillary. She's such a fucking cunt. Like, it just started getting this visceral hatred of Hillary Clinton. Okay. So and that how, was his injection. How did he manufacture that? How did he weaponize the, the autism of this disenfranchised group of young, mostly men, on the internet, on sites like 4chan, to create that cultural consciousness of Hillary Clinton being a monster? Was it tr- just through memes? Was it just through ideas spawned? from the dark depths of Reddit and, and, and 4chan. How did he do that? Because he didn't have that mainstream media machine. There was some uh, favor there with Fox News. But how was he able to do that? He didn't have a direct line of communication to these people. These are just a sort of sparse group of people in their mum's basement. No, no, no. But this is, this is the genius of him. This yeah. is what's incredible. How do I describe... You know that scene in, like, Matrix Revolutions where, like, Neo just, I don't know, hooks himself into something and then all these, like, robots just morph together and start following his mind's whim? That was Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, after recognising that the huge potential for these... This kind of unconscious mind that has come up and just... if, If you elicited its fury you could send it in a direction i can't remember if he started i think breitbart already existed but uh he he started pumping more money into breitbart Mm, mm. made it this big phenomenon and he started just uh yeah just constantly pushing gamergate because he understood that that's all they gave a shit about these these geniuses that had just mm-hmm. focused all of their attention into something stupid like Warcraft or something, right? And so he knew that they were like had the shit about Gamergate. Yeah. This is a quick historical update for everybody that doesn't really know what it is. Pretty much, uh, there was just all these shit games that were coming out that were getting recommended by all of these kind of tastemakers, I suppose, within the gaming community. And then they found out that it was ba- it was pretty much just that they were chicks that were fucking their way to the top. And that's why all these crap games kept getting put up. And so people like your Saga of the Cards, for instance, and your Chris Ray guns, they, and you, and you started to see this, 
you know, like the, 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 there was this cultural, political shift towards them when before they were just gamer nerds that were just being like, what the fuck? These games suck. Fuck death. Like that just that was pretty yeah, much it. Yeah. But then all of a sudden this sort of political ideology started coming out of nowhere. And it was because they were getting channeled. He saw that the original gaming community just started doing their little thing of like you're sexist, you're racist and whatever. And that pissed them off. And then Steve Bannon thought, bingo, here's my opportunity. He started saying, you're not a sexist. You're not a racist. Gamergate is bullshit. Like, uh, channeling them those people that were getting rejected by that structure that wasn't political at all it was just gaming he was then siphoning them into breitbart with articles that supported their worldview and then that started to expose them to the political view of uh of bannon and his political view like very broadly speaking is kind of just like no more immigrants, no uh, more trade deals. Paleo-conservative. Yeah, yeah. We're just yeah. we're just going back to the nation state. That's yeah. that's what he wants. He just wants nation states. He wants there to be, you know, like he, he actually he, is a borderline white nationalist, as far as I'm aware. Whether he's a white nationalist, he's very. I wouldn't go as far as white nationalist. He, but he is a nationalist. He yeah. really hates the ideas of like these big intergovernmental bodies and yeah. and that kind of stuff. Like he's. And and obviously that borders into white nationalism because there's just the word nationalist there. But he's he's very very fixated on the idea of a nation state. Sure. And actually, this is the other thing, and this is something that he really wanted to try and do when Trump was in. And obviously, it was just never going to work. And this is the whole thing. But he he really did understand the vision of kind of just like he wanted to make the Republicans the Workers Party, knowing that both the Democrats and the Republicans and completely abandoned workers. And he was just like, look. Let's keep the anti-immigration stuff, but let's also look after workers. We'll be in forever. And obviously, the upper echelons of the Republican Party were just like, we're going to do that. And so, (laughs) it just never happened, right? Sure, sure. But having channeled all of these kind of minds into Breitbart, he started to, and this is where this interesting thing started to happen, where it was kind of like, How did that spread into the mainstream, though? Because here's a tribe of uh, disenfranchised gamers who maybe have small to medium online followings. How did their views actually reach day-to-day American voters and workers who, were, I'm guessing, weren't consuming their content? But, like, as you pointed out, and you said this, before right in 2016 in 2016 conservatism you know just general trumpian feelings sure was cool and edgy and i remember even back in 2016 and i'm well aware of the bread and butter issues of politics my entire life is just trying to get people to focus on the bread and butter issues of politics but damn trump was appealing Damn, it was amazing. It was so refreshing. It was just like this guy that was just in your face, uh, you know, completely unapologetic about his views, funny, irreverent, all of this, like the same traits and aspects, I think, that always attract youth and always attract that rebelliousness of it. And that's why I'm saying that, like, 
the same elements that sort of made hippies, you know, Democrats, I suppose, were the same things that were making the gaming community, which I suppose was like our generation's version of hippies, but they were turning them to, which is so weird. Like, it's it's so strange to think about this. He made a party filled of like old 80-year-old cunts that just don't really care about anything except for like, uh, Bill to reduce Koch brothers' taxes specifically down. Like, that, that's all the Republicans care about. Sure. But he made that party... The party of, like, Mitch McConnell, cool. Cool. Like, the the edgy one. The fucking conservatives. Yeah. The ones that's like, the entire base is just evangelical Christians. They were the cool ones. It's a phenomenal achievement. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it was because he thought, okay, computers exist now. We do, like who cares if you have CNN with its million viewers a night trashing Donald Trump? What if you have a million gamers and they're making memes, and a lot of these memes are getting seen by hundreds of thousands of people? Just the meme, and it's funny, and it's like way more honest right. than whatever is going to be said on CNN. It's, the, it's just going to cut through. This is the original Common Sense Brigade, right? The original Common Sense Brigade. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and done amazingly well because Steve Bannon I, I like it's just amazing he was able to and, and it, it happened on such a like bigger scale than what Abby Hoffman could have ever accomplished because it happened between people that were much smarter than hippies weren't drug obsessed but were like their drug was computers mm, mm. and so they were just able to push that view onto a level that just made a, a candidate that the whole time everybody, including Trump, it seems, thought was a joke. Like, mm. the whole time even Trump was thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull this off. And it was just him that saw, no, there's a path. And these was his, these were his words. There's a path. It's not pretty. But if you want to be president, this is what you do. Right. Wow. So he was the... Man in command, the creative engine behind the Trump campaign in its latter stages. In its latter stages, but there's this. This is the whole thing, right? Like <clears throat> with any political candidate, there's always two things at play. There, there's somebody that can appeal to the masses, and there's somebody that. Oh, go on. I guess the best way to put it is there's always a king and there's always a general. And Steve Bannon is a general. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't have the same. And it's true when you watch him, his mind is just too obsessive. It's too over the place. You can tell he's hyper intelligent. Yeah. But there's nothing that draws you to him like he, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that X factor that Donald Trump has. And sure. also like he he he, he, he can't bring that he can't bring that flavor that attracts people to him but he does understand how to maximize what he has yeah you know and he he really like it's it's really interesting listening to his worldview because it's just so it's so epic in his own mind and i think that that's something else that he gave donald trump which was kind of just like you are going like screw you being the president or not right like let's make you a historical figure 
Yeah. You know, like a real change in global politics everywhere, kind of like the beacon of everything is going back. Like we're going to take elements of Bernie Sanders' campaign and we're going to be like combining that with Reagan. We're going to create something that hasn't existed before. Mm, because well, now there's the word Trumpian to describe any sort of right-wing populist figure. Yeah. Uh, nativist, anti-globalist. Mm. Yeah. Remarkable. It is it, remarkable. Who was, was another politician who recently said something? Uh, Matt Gates, I think now being investigated for pedophilia, but he said that some of the smartest people in our country are on the internet making memes. Yes. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. I know wrong. this is America, but I doubt it's very different here in Australia. No. Because there are these hyper-intelligent autists who can't really fit in to mainstream educational institutions, especially with the way universities are, are now. And so they're community their environment their bastion of uh competence is online on uh 4chan threads and well i don't know what's even happened to 4chan anymore but uh places like gamestop mm. Mm. they're able to collectively weaponize their hyper intelligence and their dismay at the system at large to bring it down well, whether they want to bring it down, there's certainly an element of that movement that do uh, they they work as chaos merchants. They're chaos merchants, and that's mm. the whole thing that Steve Bannon was able to do. And this is why, and I really do think this. You looked at Donald Trump's campaign in 2020. Steve Bannon wasn't at the forefront of it. It was garbage. And, and it was just a normal Republican campaign. Yeah. It was just like, I'm the law and order candidate. Uh, yeah. China, China, you know, like it was, it didn't have, you, you didn't feel like you were swept up in this story of good versus evil. It was kind of just like uh, Donald Trump in some 1996 election of, I don't know, like George H.W. Bush versus Clinton, like it, it felt like that. Yeah, and he still nearly won. He still nearly if it won. Wasn't for COVID, he would have won. Yeah, in a landslide. Yeah, it's not. It's not unreasonable to assume something like that, because it was a few states that were very close. Which, if they had swung to Trump, he would have won the election. Mm. So mm. it's it's that election is still far closer than people realize. Oh yeah, like scarily close, scarily close. And and it and it means that if he does run in 2024, which his ego wouldn't let him not do it, he would be a front runner. The thing I remember about 2016, because I got into that sort of movement to a certain degree, not to the extent that the people who were probably making these memes were, but that's when I started making those ske sketches and, and films. Because... Similarly, similarly to gaming, it was so pervasive in the Australian comedy scene. And I was just a young kid coming up, and I hated it. Everything about it. I felt like it was a ceiling for me. It was stifling. It was repressive, and I wanted to rebel. And I wanted to say something. So I can, I can empathize with all of those people in that movement. Because for many of them, they were young men. Yeah. Angry at the world. Yeah. The, the original incels. 
And I think that that was, that, that was what Steve Bannon, and he was able to market Trump to them as that, which is the perfect candidate for them, which was just, yeah, let's make a meme the president. Yep. Let's make a meme the president, but also... What what a gl- and and you know what actually J- Jordan Peterson summed this up well when he said that he saw a hat that said Trump twenty twenty because yes. fuck you twice yes like it was just it, it was such a and and that's what it felt like as well like uh, on I knew in terms of which is exactly how Steve Bannon had created Donald Trump it would be a disaster for international agreements globally to have Donald Trump as the president but at the same time damn it did feel good. Damn, it did feel good as a young man to have that guy come up and just like fly in the face of that culture and 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 like basically and and everyone knew it as well. Everyone also knew the the sole reason that Donald Trump is there is because we all came together and we said fuck you. We're sick of fucking uh, you know organizations like the Australian Film and Television Association and shit like that. It was just like it, 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 every. It, it, that was the reason that he was there. It was mm. it was purely because it was just like we don't like the culture that you're trying to jam down our throats. Mm. That um, was the feeling. Mass cultural movement of discontent. A mass cultural movement of discontent. Mm. Yeah, I remember uh, the day he won the election. Uh, Hillary started off really strongly in the morning, winning all the eastern co- coastal states, which you expected, but <coughs> then. Florida started turning and I had a few errands to run and then I went to the gym and this was a couple of hours later. I'm looking at the TV in the gym and um, the announcements are now 50-50 chance of Trump winning. Trump takes the lead and people at the gym were off their treadmills looking at this. Yeah. It was a, such a bizarre day. But there was something about it that was... It, it, for whatever reason, there are a lot of people who feel outcast by mainstream society and the mainstream culture, and they identified with Trump because he was the outcast. He was the rebel. Mm. And I'm not going to lie, part of me, even as a brown artist, felt that way. Mm. Mm. There was there was part of me that was devilishly happy when he won. Mm. Mm. Um and I always wonder if I were American whether I would have voted. I probably would have done what like Joe Rogan or Dave Rubin did and just vote libertarian. But and that's not even that is just because oh this two party system sucks. But there was definitely a part of me that felt excited like oh wow there there, there are these people who think differently and who are dismayed at this uh, restrictive and stifling culture yeah then it became for, for a while there it was it was just pure chaos and the resistance was just cringeworthy but it was also disappointing in the same way every american president has incredibly inspiring rhetoric and then the actual policies they enact and their method of governance never lives up to what they said it would um in the primary stage. But I think that that was the whole thing that was really interesting and honest about Trump is that really, I think that everybody in, especially in America, because it's just obvious. And I was just making this point the other day about the Australian political system. This is something that people really need to understand about the difference between the American system and the, as we were talking about before in the previous podcast, 
the Democrats used to be union funded. They used to be a workers' party. Reagan smashed that. The Democrats thought, okay, where are we going to get money? They went to banks. They went to Wall Street. And so in America now, you have a two-party system that is just two business factions competing against each other, just oil and banks, every election. That's why 50% of the time you get in the Democrats, 50% of the time you get in the Republicans, because it all just comes down to campaigning at that point. They're not representing the average person. And and again, when I say that, I'm not going to say they're exactly the same, but I'm saying that they... Because they are competing different business interests and they're a conglomerate of different interests, but yeah, it is fairer to say that they are more similar and that like they're all the same thing does make a lot more sense there. When it comes to countries like, you notice this a lot, like Britain, Australia, because there is an actual workers' party here, it is very, very rare for the Labor Party to get in because they are still primarily funded by workers. So the oligarchies of those countries have no interest whatsoever in having those parties in power so it's very very hard for them to get in but in the u.s that's what's happening and i think that when it came to donald trump well a lot of workers voted for him a lot of workers voted for him and it's because i think that there was and you even you even heard this because there was a a, chomsky actually said there was a very good breakdown because it's just extensive polling why did trump work so well there was a, there was two things there. It was first off because, yeah, like Donald Trump just, or, or Bannon sort of just marketed Donald Trump as, as, you know, the promises that he's making aren't really the promises. There was sort of just this thing of like, he's a con man, but he's honest about being a con man. And so that's like makes him more trustworthy anyway. It was genius in that sense. He was also just kind of marketing him as just like, this is the middle finger. Like you're voting for the middle finger here. Do that. Yeah. And so obviously that was very appealing, especially to people on 4chan and stuff, like making it the joke. But I think that there was also just the thing of, yeah, like let's, there was, there was sort of like a wink and a nod in his campaign to the rest of the country, which was, yeah, he's not going to change anything. This is more than one man. This is a huge broken machine. Uh, he's he's being honest about that, but saying that you know we have to drain the swamp and whatever. There was that element to it, and I think he would have won if he just kept that message up. Actually, so he was kind of honest about it. But I think that the other thing was that he was really just saying, you know, this is pure culture. Like you are really yeah. just voting on culture here. You are not voting on the machine at all. You're just is it okay to swear? Is it okay to say grab it by the pussy? That was like the real <laughs> referendum yeah. there, you know? And it shows how much that means to people. Yeah, because it's just like it's it's just like okay, it's a symbol you, of you've freedom. taken my job. Yeah. You've 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 smashed all of the social safety net. I should be allowed to swear. I think that was it. And, yeah. and and then the other side was kind of just being like, no, nah, we're still going to smash the safety net. These jobs are still going to go overseas. And also you're a bad person. Whereas like Donald Trump's campaign was just like, no, all those things are going to be the same, but like we're going to make those people feel bad and we're going to upset them. And you you even felt that, didn't you? Like you, when you saw Hillary Clinton campaign people crying, yeah, it made you feel really good. <laughs> Ah, part of me was, yeah, I don't know why, but there was part of me that found it funny. (laughs) Yeah. Funny, 
schadenfreude because it was just you know why because you could tell it, it would be a very different campaign and this is the same thing that uh steve bannon was saying he was saying that if bernie sanders was running it would be a different feeling because it would i i think that bernie sanders would have had more of an altruistic thing behind him of everybody being like okay we're all going to sacrifice a little so that we can fix this thing that, that and so like it would have it would have spoken to you on a more yeah he probably would have won like head level heart level at the same time kind of thing yeah well, he, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if he would have won, but there was he, Bannon and Trump both were just like, I'm so glad we never faced Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came to Hillary Clinton, there was none of that. There was no, she was offering nothing except for the aggrandizement of herself and then cloaking herself in this patronizing thing of just like uh, women are... Uh, like, if if you're a man, you must atone for man's sins by voting for me. Yeah, there's a zero class consciousness in that movement, in the Nothing. upper echelons of the cultural elites of the Democratic Party. Because when you are a blue-collar man who has lost their job through no fault of their own, it's not as though they haven't worked hard, it's not as though they haven't uh, provided for their family, it just so happened that their job was able to be outsourced uh how do you have the gall to then say i'm worse off than you of course that's going to infuriate 90 percent of the male population below you Mm. and it's this uh sentiment that actually now in the uh male self-help community is strong which is that when feminists and and women are talking about privileged men and how they embody certain characteristics and have uh, things go their way and can sort of say things and get away with it. They're talking about that top 1% of men, that they're noticing the CEOs of their company, but every other man is blind to them. Mm. And that, that, that is a ubiquitous concept, but it's blind to a lot of people on the, whatever you want to call it, woke, cultural left blah 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 whatever the name is for it the corporate Mm, left mm, mm. but that's that's what's happened like the fact that that it's it's not that it didn't exist it definitely existed it's a college campus thing it's also the thing it's something that people always complain about when it comes to the democrats which is that it's a very college educated party And so they have those college-educated views of the world, a very Obama-Hillary Clinton view of the world. Sure. Um, Yeah. Just jumping in there, when you say that um, labour in both the UK and Australia, they're still worker-funded. Labour in the UK had their conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. And a big takeaway from that was at one point Keir Starmer said, Yes, women can. Women don't have to have a cervix to be a woman, woman, or something like that. And it just, what are you doing? His whole ethos was, "Hey, I want to actually bring more people into the Labor Party. I still want to, uh, you know, 
preside over a party that has an umbrella for working class people who would otherwise be culturally small c conservative. And he's going up there and saying, well, I, look, I don't really necessarily disagree with that, but why are you making that a major part of your platform? That's so weird. And I, I well, don't dumb. understand. I, I think it's just the thing of like, they, they just exist in these circles and those people exist in those circles because I don't know. There's just, there's just sort of like some kind of control aspect or something. And that's why they enter politics. And so they, they, they have this warped view that that's how the average person thinks and like, Oh yeah, the average person will give leeway to this. And it's just not true. The average person doesn't think like that. In the same way, uh, the, uh, old media would often describe a lot of the things Trump was saying as dog whistles. This is a dog whistle for racism. This is a dog whistle for white nationalism. When I hear something like that, look, I think people should be allowed to do whatever they want and if they want to get surgery and identify as a certain gender, I'm happy to accommodate that. But when I hear a mainstream politician of a Western country saying something like that on their party's largest platform stage, I think, well, that's a dog whistle. That's a dog whistle for an anti-science, anti-freedom of speech, anti-free expression culture that I'm not okay with. Mm. And and I don't think that that is just a sentiment in and of itself. Which again, look, if that was a sentiment that wasn't sort of just this upper-class bourgeois idea that really, as we're saying, right, like it's just a very small group of people that actually think about that, think that way comparatively to the rest of the population. Mm. This is the difference, right? The dog whistles that Trump was making, every time you heard them, you thought, yeah, good play. And as you're saying, like when you hear the dog whistles that, say, the UK Labor Party was making or the Democrats were making, you're always just thinking, what are you doing? You're, you're isolating everyone except for like, you know, people in Hollywood and people in fucking universities, like elite universities. Mm. It was just so bizarre that they were just so off the mark culturally. And I think that that's the whole thing. It's just, that's what those circles do. They They just make... And so, so it was just amazing, like just years and years of those kind of campaigns of, you know, you George H.W. Bush style campaign. And then all of a sudden you had a guy and it's just so fitting as well. He's a genius, like this really bizarre thing in life of just making like, uh, you know, like investments, Hollywood producer, and then becoming this, um, you know, leader of a, a, a new political movement. But then he just rocks up and he goes to interviews and stuff, unkempt hair, five o'clock shadow, wearing like a US military jacket. And it was so amazing. Like when you go back and look at it, in a world full of suits, in and a world full of clean cut hair, yeah. Mm. And then you have that guy there. And of course he is going to have a different way of thinking about things. But there's just yeah, it's it's I I think that like a big part of and this is what's truly genius about his legacy, the fact that you, for instance, are picking up on that, and the fact that that guy even said that in the first place of, uh, whatever he said that like you know a woman 
blah, 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 some gender or something like that. I think that that was, if, if it did not exist, they wouldn't have even mentioned it in the first place. It was Bannon that really brought that to the forefront. He sort of created the new frontiers of this culture war, and that is his legacy. And it's truly remarkable that he has, because it's it's like, it's he, he knew two things. He just had such a good instinct for the world, and, and to his credit, so did Trump. Trump had another good instinct of like reading the room and all that kind of stuff. But Bannon understood there's this disaffected, hive mind here that you can sort of mold into something and and make that like you know let's elect a meme and 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 they and we can get them to start pushing thing and this is why they were always just like yeah let's just do this as a joke let's turn this into a white nationalist symbol and all that kind of stuff mm. because they knew that it would just like play at the insecurities and and uh, you know th- th- that elite culture that they had, that he knew the average person would find contemptible, and he made that come out of them. He made that seep out of them more, and for them because they, it was just yeah, sort yeah. of the way they see the world. So they they were just reacting to it of just being like, oh my god, racism, and the, making them react to that, which made them more contemptible to the average person. Ah, so playing at their insecurities. Playing at their insecurities mm. and also like highlighting the parts of their wow. personalities the that people would find war. contemptible. The art of war. It's incredible. It's just because he's read so many. This is the other thing. He's just an avid reader and he's read so many um, successful general books, uh, biopics and all that kind of stuff. He's like a lot of uh, national builders, like a big, a big uh, hero of his is Charles de Gaulle. He's read a lot of history, and so he knows He knows how good generals and tacticians think. Yeah. You know, like there was – the thing is, if you were just sitting there with a professional person here and a professional person here, and you're just like – like John McCain's campaign, of just like, well, I have different differences with Obama. The underlying implicit thing that happens is that you're just like, no, yeah, Obama's fine. Yeah, maybe it is time for a black president. You just let it pass. Yeah, yeah. But if you just make this guy sitting there and just being like, he only wants it because he's black. Like, what do, what do you mean? He's only going to get it because he's black? And then that and then that guy is just like, well, I think it's time that there should be a black president. And then all of a sudden it's just like, what the fuck is this? So that's your only platform. And then that starts building the resentment there, starts creating those polar cultures. Wow. So there was this kettle that just kept boiling and boiling and boiling and he lifted the lid off it. Yeah. Or, or like, no, actually, I'll, I'll go further than that analogy. The kettle was there. He turned the fire on. Yeah. And it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. It's, it's cooled now not off count- a bit. Yeah, it's now not counterculture. It's now, it's now quite mainstream. Which is interesting. He, he, he changed the, the, the right wing has changed dramatically over the last five years. It's now no longer the deficit hawk, pro-business. I think the people at the upper echelons of uh, the Republican Party or the Tories and Liberals here would, would still be that, but they're now also appealing to disaffected working-class people. I mean, the Tories did that in England. It's really weird, actually. That's what's happened here in Australia as well is the original face, like the, the the traditional face of the Liberal Party here would be Malcolm Turnbull. Absolutely. 
that is mm. what liberals are. This sort of like sensible uh, eastern suburbs fellow that wears a cravat. Rather likes the idea of national parks, but also likes a stable budget, like that that kind of a person. Sure. That doesn't fly anymore. Like, it just, it's gone. He's changed politics to the degree. So now, and this is what's happened in the Liberal Party here, the people that control the Liberal Party, and this is the whole thing that you see with votes moving away from the North Shore and the Eastern Suburbs, because they're appalled. They see these kind of characters like Dutton and Scott Morrison, these deep state figures that are sort of rising out from the dark corners of public bureaucracy, taking over the Liberal Party, which is just weird to begin with because it's never been like a, a you know public servant kind of party, but they are, and they don't hold those traditional values. And instead now, and this is the amazing thing, and this is what the upper class of the liberals are saying as well, they're just, they're getting all of their votes from Western Sydney now. And they're like, they're winning these seats that they weren't even campaigning in, looking at it and just kind of being appalled and thinking, oh, why the fuck are we like attracting this filth now? Like the ch- <laughs> it's changing. Jesus Christ. It's changing. It's really strange. It's like Democrats, Labor, all across the world, the, the, the face of them is kind of just becoming, it's really strange, like the the entrepreneurial class, the, yeah, the educated entrepreneurial class is becoming the face of workers' parties across the world. So And again, like the mm. Labor Party is sitting there just being like, why the fuck aren't these factory workers voting for us? Mm. You know, mm. why is this fucking tech startup app guy voting for us? Yeah, they're losing the culture war. It's weird. It's really weird, isn't it? Uh, it makes sense. I think culture is more significant to people's lives than some in the realm of public policy realize. Because culture appeals to people's emotions. Whereas when you talk about, well, the budget here for this road should be higher and this other party is proposing a much higher and better plan for the infrastructure... Doesn't appeal to the people's heart. Nah, it doesn't, does it? Whereas when you say you should be free to say whatever the fuck you want, oh, sick, I'm voting for them. Whether they actually enact those policies or not. And I think that if you think about it, just the the very culture of the fuck you... Yes. Is is a really it's a really good measurement for how satisfied your society is. Mm. If everybody is getting theirs and they feel like they're getting looked after by the government, like I'd imagine in Scandinavian countries they would have that. Yeah, they'd never have a Trump figure. They'd there. never have a Trump figure. Not not now. Hmm. Hmm. How many disaffected people who are not getting their professional psychological, basic personal needs met exist, that will determine how many, the likelihood of a demagogue. Mm. It's actually exactly what Bernie Sanders was saying the whole way through. It's just, you know, the, the, the and, and this is actually something that everybody also says, as in, look, if Steve Bannon tried to pull that off in the 90s. No, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. In fact, Trump had tried to run numerous times before that, yeah. and it just failed every time. It was there was 
It was a very unique moment in history that that could have happened. And there was just a bunch of things that went that way. It was the, it was the Trump was the candidate to begin with. That was a huge help. Bannon behind it. huh? And he <coughs> didn't convincingly win the primary. I remember, I know, I, you know, the fact that a, uh, how old would I have been at the time? 21, 22. The fact I was interested in the primary of American politics says something. Doesn't it? Why the fuck would a 21-year-old Australian guy be uh, interested in the Republican primary of America? But I was. And I remember Ben Carson was the leader at the start. Ben Carson was leading the primary. Then Ted Cruz came up. And then out of nowhere, Trump just skyrocketed. Yeah. And actually, if, if the Republicans had done what the Democrats did in this recent primary where they just told uh, some of the people siphoning votes from the other establishment figures to exit the race, Trump mightn't have actually won the primary. If they had told Jeb Bush and and everyone to leave except for Ted Cruz, well, Ted Cruz would have won all the votes of the other guys. Having said that, Ted Cruz had a anti-establishment tinge to him as well, except he's the compl- he's that very fervent evangelical Christian. who is also a paley... I, I don't know what his exact philosophy is, but see, he wasn't but, that well-liked by the Republican establishment either. No, but see, this is the whole thing. Like, Ted Cruz is slimy. He's... he's there's nothing really likable about that. He's actually the exact opposite. In fact, in a bid between Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton, I would hate Ted Cruz way more because he's just worse as a candidate in general, but also just on a visceral level. He's just such a slimy man. And, like, obviously, he's going to... He doesn't appeal to the worker. Doesn't appeal to the worker. That's the whole thing. He definitely does not evoke the middle finger vote. He was obviously trying to put a bit of that tinge into his campaign, but as you can really see, he was really trying to work that evangelical vote, whereas Bannon knew that evangelicals just fall in line. Doesn't matter who it is, and he proved that without a doubt with putting yeah. Trump at the front, and they still voted for him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of all people, he doesn't exactly embody Christian values. No. Uh, yeah. What an interesting time, twenty sixteen. What a year. What a fucking year. See, that was a whole. But you know why you have that feeling when you look back at it and you think, "What a year." He created a culture. The trajectory of history changed. The trajectory of history changed, and it's because the culture the culture was amorphous and nothing, and he created something out of that. Credit to him. Um, I'm going to finish this uh, podcast on a question that actually fits with the theme. So this is a question... Uh, and it's specifically for you, Jordan. Mm. Why is Scott Morrison the best Prime Minister Australia has ever had? <laughs> you put yourself in the shoes of a quiet Australian here. Come on, Jordan. You can do this. Steel man your opponents. Oh, look, I. there is something. Look, I'll tell you this. Malcolm Turnbull... And Malcolm Turnbull doesn't say this about anyone because he has 
almost as big of an ego as Trump does, right? Like he's, he's such a high opinion of himself. Mm. But he says this about Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison is one of the smartest men he's ever met in his life. And he spent his entire life around investment bankers and barristers. He thinks that Scott Morrison is one of the smartest men he's ever met. He, th- he thinks he's smarter than he is. And the true genius of Scott Morrison is that he acts like a dope. It's all an act. It's all an act. And it makes a lot of sense because he just gives that, yeah, that dopey, as as it was, the daggy dad. He was always going for the daggy dad angle. It was because he understood marketing. Yeah. Did he play more into the tall poppy syndrome of Australia in the sense that a Trump-like figure in Australia would have been received as, oh, this guy's a fucking dickhead, thinks he's better than me. Versus Scott, ah, he's non-threatening. Because in Australia, you haven't had those, uh, as you always say, in the 80s, you didn't have Thatcher or uh, Reagan there outsourcing a huge amount of jobs. The uh, Gini coefficient in Australia compared to other Western countries is still nowhere near as pronounced as the UK or America. In fact, Modi said this when he visited Australia. He said, Australia, that's the one country where the plumber can still live next door to the businessman. I don't know if he still Mm. said businessman, Mm. but it's a very egalitarian country. Mm. Uh, You look at the average salary of someone who works in construction, who works as a laborer, it's not that far off someone who has a degree. In fact, because they don't have the hex debt and because they get into the workforce a lot earlier and now they don't actually face the proposition of their job being overtaken by AI as many people in professional industries do, it still is the working man's paradise. So there isn't as much dismay uh, at the political class. Well, there wasn't in 2019 and 2016. It's not the same. When people say, oh, it's like America, this movement is happening. Not really, because then Pauline Hanson would win. Mm. She wouldn't just be winning a couple of seats here and there. She'd, she'd win an election. Well, yeah, well, she'd definitely have the power of balance in the Senate. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. But... It's not at that point in Australia. And in 2019, what do, what is still occurring here that's also occurring in the other major Western countries is the culture war. And to a certain extent, Morrison played the culture war. There was a general sentiment of, oh, the Labour Green types, they're going to... You won't be able to say what you want to say. Yeah. It's the quietest... And that whole thing of the quiet Australian... The person who felt like they couldn't speak their mind. There's, look, I'm not. There is a certain truth to um, people who are proponents of uh, labor or, or the Greens that have this sentiment of talking down to other people, which can turn a lot of people off. Regardless of actually listening to the policies, they think, "Oh, fuck! I don't, these guys seem negative." And that's maybe where that's where the quiet Australian thing came from. Like a lot of liberal voters might in the conversation, they'll just they'll just keep their mouth shut, right? I think that that's the whole thing that he's cottoned on to, and that's what he's tried to run his entire. And he that's exactly what he's trying to do with online safety is trying to keep noise to an absolute minimum. It's the same way that Japan, which is basically just a one party state, their liberal party in power virtually all the time, they do exactly the same thing. They understand that making noise results in upset. 
So, and that's the whole thing. Like he's, he's modeled the whole thing on quiet Australians because he understands that Australians in general don't give a fuck about politics. And that's, and when you are a conservative party like the Tories that have the entire media establishment behind your back, no news is good news. In fact, his entire mm. mantra for the uh, election that he won was we're going to take politics off the front page. That's what he's trying to bring the projection of. Everything's fine, so why would you need to change anything? That is exactly what you need to run when you are in government. Everything's fine. Mm. If you run the opposite, which is exactly what they tried to do with Tony Abbott, and Tony Abbott did successfully, but again, the entire media landscape is behind him. Worst government on earth. Everything needs to change. Everything's going to shit. Like, that's, that's what you're trying to run for. Scott Morrison is particularly good at that, and he is particularly good at marketing to people that don't care about politics, and he does that. With the sharkies thing. With the sharkies thing. And just being the daggy dad. With yep. the daggy dad. I, I like cooking curries. Just That's his image. His image is barely anything to do with being prime minister. He's, he's that. He's just like a dad that is prime minister. That's yeah. what he's going for. Yeah, yeah, wow. The, the fucking curries. He can't even cook them. They're fucked. But that also helps. Like, I think he understands that Australians kind of like a shit cunt. He's trying to come off as just being inept and, like, not as good as you. And that's the whole thing. Again, the thing is Australians... non-threatening, non-threatening. Non-threatening. But it's the other thing. Australians, and it goes back to our union roots, which is really, really gives me the shits that he's really um, playing on that. But the reason that we are one of those countries that still, as Modi says, you can have you know your plumber next to your banker. The reason that we are that is because we were founded by unions, and so at the very beginning we had a society that had a strong middle class, yeah. and this idea that just because you're doing like bricklaying work, why does that make you a shitter person than someone sits around in an office and shuffles papers all day? Like yeah. working fucking hard, you know. Like there was all that kind of stuff, and as a result of that, Australia really doesn't like tall poppies because again it's the that kind of egalitarian society is just sewn into the cultural fabric of this country conversely we really like the underdog yes we go for the underdog yeah and i yeah. like that about australian culture. like Good. dude like the 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 castle is kind of just like the pinnacle of australian film and that, that's another reason why i really hate um what's what's the film in Australia called again? What's that thing called? Uh, the Australian Film Commission. Can't remember what it's called. I don't know. I, don't, mean, I can't believe that I've blanked on that. But like, that's what really shits me about that. That it's just every story has to be about either meth heads or how bad Aboriginals were treated. It always just has to be something that is just, again, that kind of Hillary Clinton thing of just constantly shaming Australia. Whereas... The castle, the entire point of it was kind of like this underdog getting a, f- a fair go in life. I think that that's like, yeah. that's what, yeah. it, and, and that's like Scott Morrison's main little catchphrase. You have a go, you get a go. The, the, he's, he's really, as Trump has done, he's really identified what Australia wants. So like America is a deeply dissatisfied country because it's just a Reagan dystopia at this point. So he's just, he's, he's gone into that. Whereas Australia is a fairly satisfied country. So yeah. it's just like, yeah, we've got a good thing going. Just keep it going. It's not quite there yet. It's not like quite I there. Said, otherwise, I think Pauline would be winning. Although it's getting, it could get to that point in another 10, 20, 30 years. 
you keep things the way they're going now, what will that is there. what will happen. Well, he does have a marketing background, so that's what won him the election, the marketing. Mark, he's, he's a genius at it. He's really revolutionised press relationships with the Department of uh, the Office of Prime Minister. He's really limited the opportunity for uh, the Labor Party to hit him in Parliament. Basically, all the opposition can do now is ask a question. It's just made really taken all the democracy out of democracy. Um, but that that. That general feeling of discontent, the only place that that really exists is in the, in the, like, and, and that's the other thing as well. They can, they can, uh, what's the word? Sacrifice, I suppose, a couple of seats to your One Nations and your UAPs, your preference sucking parties, and they can take up a bit of that disaffected vote. But as you can see, Australia, we can sit there and whinge, but Australia also, that's part of their culture. They like to whinge. But they're not at yep. that stage where they're going to vote for, you know, a, a fucking celebrity. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Because that was a big upset, 2019. He wasn't projected. The Liberals weren't projected to win, and especially not to that extent. That's true. But also, Alan Jones did call it from the very beginning, and he is actually... That man really understands the electorates and he was just right. And now I go back and now that I know people that like are deeper into the Labor Party, they were saying the same thing as well. They were saying, that, but this is the whole thing. Like mm. your, your Democrats, uh, your workers' parties, it's actually kind of the same in Japan as well. They win. They win the popular vote. That is why... They make things like electoral colleges and seats because they're trying to de-democratize the democratic process because they know that if that would happen, it would just be a landslide for Labor every time. Like, Labor attracts more votes than any other party. Even the coalition combined do not get more votes than the Labor Party. Labor in the last election got 4 million. They got 3.5 million. Oh, really? The Greens, I think, got a million. So, that's like 5 million versus 3.5 million votes. Mm. Those votes are just disproportionately put out into the regions and that's why the nationals mm. just suck them up every time. That's how they keep getting back into power. Okay. But so that's the whole thing, right? Like it's just like, yeah, no. Shorten would be prime minister. Kim Beasley would have been prime minister. Most prime ministers would be Labor prime ministers if it was just down to the popular vote. It was deliberately designed to not do that. So you kept them out of power. There was all these checks and balances to make sure that the Workers' Party stays out of power because even with all the propaganda that's put in, most people generally understand, no, they're trying to fuck me over, you know. But they're still there. They're still there. So the upset really was more manufactured than was actually going to be perceived. Like when you looked at the seats, this is what Alan Jones was asking at the very beginning of that election night, which was like, where are the seats? I can see the popular vote, but where are the seats? Right. Well, there's, was there any surprising swing in particular seats with particular demographics? Yes. Because I remember when we did that podcast a while ago about that Labor report, um, younger people swung towards Liberals, 25 to 34-year-olds, working and middle-class young families, Seemed like they swung to liberals, you know, the quiet Australians, if you will, people outside of the inner city, and even migrants started sw swinging to liberals who have always traditionally been um, 
Labour voters. Mm. But, well, first of all, migrants now, a lot of them have been there for, for a very long time. They're second, third generation. They've climbed the property ladder. They've climbed the social ladder. They're not workers anymore. Yeah, maybe their grandparents came here uh, post-war to work in a factory. But now, a lot of them are accountants and in the professional class. But and they're small C conservative. See, that's the thing. And this is the thing that's very interesting about Dom Perrottet becoming Premier because everyone's saying, oh, yeah, he's not as popular as great. It's true. Broadly, he's not more popular. But they are making a culture war out of the fact that he is Christian. Yeah. And yeah. that is going to play really well with immigrants. Yes. Because really, most of their politics comes down to religion. I'm seeing it already. They're purposely... Man- You're right. I can see that. And they're purposely manufacturing it because they've now, today, now his wife's pregnant with a seventh child or something, and they're plastering that all over social media. In the same way, I think, you know how Bannon was trying to get at the insecurities of that cultural elite? This is getting to the insecurities of the cultural elite. I'm seeing so many basic girls on Instagram complaining about the fact that a, a man in power's wife is having a seventh child when it's probably her, but she probably wanted to do it. Mm. What has that got to do with the the actual premiere? Mm. Mm. But just seeing the hatred for it is going to piss people off who are Christian, who are Muslim, who do have families. Stay-at-home moms are going to be pissed off with that sort of mentality. And they're not as active and vocal on social media. They're just going to see that. They're going to see that sentiment like, oh, he's a Christian, he's a family man, fuck him. I want a, like, corporate woman in power. They're going to listen to that and and observe that and and do, well, to some degree, a protest vote. See, this is the thing that I think you, if, if, if you could pull this off, and this is the same thing with Bannon, where it's like, it's dirty. You're not going to like it, but you can win. Uh huh. I really think that just how we tagged Gladys Berejiklian with koala killer, you tag Dom with baby killer, that would fuck him up. Why? Where would he be a baby? How is he a baby killer? Because his party passed abortion strongly against his will, but he's still there. And it's like, now that you're the premier, pass back abortion. If you wanted to really get under the skin right. and really fuck the culture war up, those basic chicks that are sitting there being like, oh my God, you're so Christian, you're so Christian. You wouldn't be saying that. You would be saying he's a baby killer, which will take away all of his power from those Western suburbs seats that are filled with migrants that give a shit about religion and abortion and stuff. That's how you fucking but would get it at then him. make them? But because would that be enough to actually swing their vote? Because it's not as though Labor is offering a more socially conservative candidate. No, but I think that it's just that same thing of like, okay. oh, you know, he, he's your big power. It's the same thing with Trump. It's just like, here's your big power, it's gone. Like the grabber by the pussy thing, and then he turned around and then said, you've defended rapists in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> right, right. You know? Like you just take it off them. It's it's just whatever they're saying, you flip it on them. 
I think that that's the way to get at it. But you're right. That yes. is exactly what's happening. They are manufacturing that culture war now because it is just a well-trodden path now, which is that politics flows downstream from the culture, uh-huh. which is just they've gone for a different angle now they've they've which is what they're doing with dom what they're doing with dom is turning him his his greatest weakness which is the fact that he is a social conservative into his biggest strength the thing is that like mm-hmm. his views to the average person are like, you know, how many people have seven kids anymore? No one. How many people have seven kids by 39? I mean, it's impressive. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> He's getting it done. <laughs> He's getting it done. He's like unbelievably mature for his age. Yeah, he looks a lot older. Than- he looks like he's in his 50s. Doesn't he? Yeah, he looks a lot older than he is. But I guess that's what, like, raising seven kids. That's There's a big meme going on at the moment. They're just being like, please explain how Jordan is 32 and John Perrottet is 39. (laughs) Good point, Dude, you know what? The the top comment. How good is the top comment? Catholic guilt will do that to you. Yeah, (laughs) he looks like a bit of a repressed gay. He's got that feeling. He's kind of got that about him. It wouldn't surprise me if he had some... uh, some gay thoughts in but, the teenage years, and now he's overcompensating. Look at me, I'm seven kids, I'm straight. It's got that, yeah. Or like, just, just even if it's not gay, repressed. He's a repressed yeah, man. Yeah, he looks a bit repressed. Yeah, yeah. He's not really that sort of hardened Aussie battler at all. No, that guy, the the Aussie battler. If anyone can like emulate the 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 traits of the like average Aussie battler, the charismatic like like Bob Hawke, they they win no matter what the party. They, and there's no one in parliament like that. Well, I can't see a single person that's like that. I'm, I mean, and it's rare. I mean, I'm not, you know, not many people are like that anymore. That sort of character is dying. I'm trying to think if there's anyone even in comedy that's like that. Dude, I'll tell you, there was actually someone in parliament really? that's like that. And actually, I've spoken to him a couple of times since. It was a little bit like, he left though, didn't he? No, no, like, I, like, uh, the... He's never going to be prime minister. He's just too hated by his party. But there was, I swear to God, Michael Daly. Michael Daly was, that was a man from the burbs if I ever saw one. That's a guy that gives a shit about lawn. And you speak to him. I've spoken to him a couple of times. Yeah. He's so Aussie. So Aussie. He didn't, from what I saw, he didn't come across that way. Just the look. Of the you know the the glasses and the, he doesn't look like a a working man. I know because they're always trying to hide it. It's the same thing with Anthony Albanese. If I was Anthony Albanese, he says it a bit, but I would be saying it every time I ever open my mouth. I grew up in the flats. I grew yeah, up in yeah, housing yeah. commission. But he doesn't every have time. The, he doesn't have the like. He's got that nasally voice and he's a bit chubby now. He just doesn't have that kind of image that someone like. Yeah, Bob Hawke kind of did. Yeah, I think the thing with Michael Daly, he's got the gut for it. He's got the accent for it. If he got laser surgery and did his eyes. But the other thing was, dude, he had two massive things going up against him. He was opposition leader for four months. 
35% of the population didn't know who he was. But this is the interesting thing about it. I didn't realize this at the time. But that whole Asian, like, scandal, they tried to get that so that they could get a couple of those, like, Hearst-Philly seats. Uh, it worked. Some swing in some of them might have been explained by it. But it doesn't actually seem like the Asians in general gave that much of a fuck about those comments. The thing that was, like, amazing about it, I think... They'll vote for whichever one day after them pay lower taxes and then they don't care about anything else it was amazing i just went over to um one of those lga places yeah and it was just this asian that i was speaking to and i was just like fuck that is going to be the view here and they were, and it was just like when i were in lockdown i thought to look at news i can't look at gladys berejiklian anymore they, 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 I all hate hate they all hate her i've been talking to people here in burwood they fucking hate her yeah 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 is that amazing and, and why Made me close down my business. Exactly. Yeah. Well, can you blame <laughs> them? Fucking hate them. I mean, can you blame them? But it's just like it's like okay. I, I will say. I that, understand. Okay. Like I know this is a white person thing. As a white person thing, right? Hmm. A candidate that you like makes you close down your business. You'll bitch about it, but you're not changing your vote. You, you fucking died in the wool. If you're a liberal voter, you're voting liberal. Yeah. If you're a Labor voter, you're voting Labor. You'll Wait, bitch about it, but when it comes to the vote, you'll sit there and be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, only that. thing that changes that maybe is just like uh, moving. The only thing that changes that for white people, houses. Yes. Business isn't going to do that. Houses. But that'll for ethnics, fucking do that it. will change the vote immediately. They don't have a, a big attachment to either party. They just don't. They, it's, okay, what's in it for me? Cool, I'll vote for this one. In, in America, Asians are the least uh, politically active group Cause in the just, whole country. They've been so conditioned by where they grew up, where it was kind of just like, you don't have a choice. Yeah, and it's just, you know, they've got other priorities. They will, they will, whatever conditions they're in, they will mold their business to be successful in those conditions. Yeah. They're not trying to, they're not like, I'm angry at the world and I'm going to force these people to change the world for me. No, I'm going to adapt to the world. In Mm. fact, most immigrants, I think, have that mentality. Mm, mm, Um, mm. I know we've had disagreements on this before, but that comment, like uh, whether it was manipulated or whatever, it wasn't like a... That comment he said about like Asians are taking your jobs, that was like a 2000 style racism. It wasn't like a today, oh, you know, Asians are victims or like brown people are victims or black people are victims. When I heard that, I was turned off because it's, it, 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 he's doing it to this like Blue Mountains audience. Oh, these Asians are taking your jobs. Yeah, they're taking the jobs because they're harder workers, because they don't drink 10 beers a night and they're very conscientious. That is that kind of 90s, 2000s style that actually Pauline Hansen came up in, which at, no migrants would have voted and would vote for that. Mm. And that's where I, I, I just I, I can't see that as a sort of manufactured new culture war issue. That seems to be an older culture war issue, the culture war issue of like the early 2000s. Yeah, it was an old. Yeah, you're right. It was an old culture war thing. Having said that. I don't think it actually hurt him electorally looking at the numbers closer. People will say that their vote went down in these seats. That's true. But that's also to do with the fact that uh, these these seats had been traditionally moving towards being liberal seats for a long period of time. And like the, the, the changing demographics in those seats 
is more to do with affluence moving into that than it is to do with, oh, you said Asians suck. I'm an Asian. Like it, it was a very simplistic way of looking at it. They, mm. It was something just basically to slime him with and like, again, to just, just dog him with something quickly that they could cobble up together. But the thing that was very interesting about Michael Daly, and it was just very obvious actually as well, and it's very interesting, the same thing with Kyle Sanderlands is what you were pointing out as well. People just vote on vibe. And I think that just no one knew who Michael Daly was, but when you did see Michael Daly in action, like when you saw him on Kyle and Jackie O with Gladys Berejiklian, it was obvious who was the better person out of the two. It really fucking was. And it's just, I think that that's what they were saying. It's just, and the, the whole thing, man, as Labor's been saying, you put the shit on Gladys Berejiklian, Daryl Maguire, terrible transportation minister track, there was all these things like over the span of two years that they were hitting Gladys Berejiklian with, didn't do anything to her numbers. She stayed there. She stayed there and it was because even when she went out, yes, there was a lot of media bias towards it, but there was just a general vibe. And I do like this about the Kyle and Jackie O show because they're just dogs. They kind of just pick up on the vibe of things. They're not interested yeah, in politics at all. We'll vote on vibe for sure. They're voting on vibe. I and like with Gladys, that. that was it. Yeah. And it was amazing because also my Central Coast family, they're always just like, how could you say those things about Gladys Berejiklian? And I was like, well, they're true. And then their response every time was, but I like her. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There is a lot of that. It's what Tony Robbins says about every election, that it's yeah. just pretty much whoever is the most congruent, the one that just makes you feel the best, Yeah, you yeah. pick that one. Yeah. And that's what that it's was the genius contest. of popularity contest. But mm. like there's angling there. I think that's what happened with, when we go back to Trump and thing, it was like, okay, Trump, when you think about it, funny and scary. So there was just this element of excitement and fear uh -huh. that was with Trump. With Hillary Clinton... It wasn't fear because you knew what a Hillary Clinton government would look like. It would look like Bill Clinton's government. You'd been through it before. It was just hatred. It was revulsion. Revulsion. It, wasn't it was just a horrible, like, unpleasant feeling. Ugh. That, <laughs> that sound sums it up. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Whereas with Trump. Ugh, I'm going to be lectured for four years. Lectured for four years. That's what it was. You can about. tell you're an evil person. Be nagged for four years. Whereas with Trump, it wasn't like you never thought for a second that he was an evil person. And even like when you go and look at all of the, you know, smearing that happened to him over the next four years and during, it was never that he was evil. Stupid, yeah. brash, yeah. nasty. But these were all kind of like human traits that you sort of thought, these are forgivable. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, any final words on why Scott Morrison is the best prime minister Australia's ever <laughs> uh, I honestly think that, look, what the prime minister's office has morphed into, especially for a liberal, that is exactly who you want as prime minister, a marketer. That's, it used to have something respectable to it. Usually you'd be a barrister or something like that before you got into politics. You could argue the case. You could think about things logically. Mm. Now the entire job is smoke and mirrors. Mm. It's, a real, it's a real downgrade on the office 
itself and a, a sign of the times that we are in that the it's the same thing with Donald Trump like yeah it was really at the end of the day it was all smoke and mirrors he didn't give anything back to his voting base absolutely nothing just pummeled them again same mm. thing with Scott Morrison what has he done for this country nothing of good absolutely damaged it you know economically environmentally every metric that you can think that guy has damaged it and future generations will pay for it and the person that is able to just say, you know, but I'm a Shahis fan, that's amazing. That's <laughs> that's marketing 101. Yeah, I remember listening to um, one of the footy shows that I watch and Paul Gallen was talking about it. Hey, isn't it great to see? He's a man of the people. He's just out there having a beer, watching the footy. Mm, mm. Look, I can understand that mentality, but at the same time, and I know it sounds condescending and I know it sounds patronizing, but you, you're going to judge the person who has the most political power in this country, whether they drink a beer and watch the fucking game that you play, man, for fuck's sake, like read something about the policies. It's fucked, isn't it? It's it's scary, but scary. At, at the same time, it's that attitude that I just had that it's turning people, that turns people off. Uh anyone who may seem too intellectual or too intelligent well that's the whole thing actually it's so you can't have that attitude you can't have that you know, you're right but it's it is just terrifying but like let me ask you this actually how when you think of scott morrison what are the words that come to mind for you i don't actually find him charismatic or personable in any way i just think ugh. Like, uh, yeah, daggy dad. But Dull. Cringy. Cringy, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Cringy and dull. That's Whereas, what I always thought. Like, with him, I was just like, you're a shit cunt. It's, yeah. not like, it's not like I fucking detest you. It's the same thing with the Hillary Clinton thing. It's not utter contempt and hatred. It's more just like, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of that. But most Australian politicians, I kind of get that. I'm not going to lie. Well, what do you get with Albo? He kind of has a similar sort of thing, but not as daggy. But I don't get like an inspiring figure. The the one I like, like I've always told you, Tanya Plibersek. I listened, I watched the interview you did with her and I was like, ah, that's an inspiring person. That's someone I would vote for. And if we're just talking about character and personality. And then she's also done things like, there was a time just after the 2019 election where she tweeted saying, um, all Australian children should have to uh, pledge allegiance to the country. Now, again, like that's something I would have thought was cringy in the early 2000s and actually a dog whistle for nationalism and anti-immigration. But now I think, yeah, good. We need some sort of respect for the bastions of Western culture. And if that means some kind of cringy pledge to Australia, so be it. That's a cultural message I'd support. And she got all this hate on Twitter and she said, no, nah, I'm still gonna, I'm still committing to this. Mm. I like her more than anyone in Australian politics. You know why? She but, has that nice crossover actually into the migrant world and the Aussie world, which is Eastern European. Yeah. I think Eastern Europeans are like quite Aussie in, yeah, their, yeah. in their outlook on life, except for like more hardworking yeah, but I got to be honest, man. Albo doesn't really. Eh, I'm like, eh, you, you kind of all right. <laughs> I don't know. I think he's got you're very right. nasally voice. Yeah, and I... he's kind of pudgy, and he's got the glasses. Go. It's like I don't know, man. Is this a leader? 
But that's that's what I think is like maybe giving me a good feeling about the next election if this is all right, especially if he doesn't piss off um, uh, Murdoch too much. He'll squeak in because I think that you've kind of identified it. I think that the average person looks at Albo and thinks, you're a slightly better version of ScoMo. Yeah, yes and no. Yeah, the thing is, like, with a lot of the cultural messaging of Labor, don't you think just inherently in that there's judgment? So when you say we need to be better towards migrants, we need to be better towards including women in the upper echelons of the corporate and political sphere, again, these are good sentiments, but it just, I think for a lot of voters, that's a dog whistle for I'm going to be fucking lectured to for three years again about how I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. And, I, and as soon as any, it's the same with Keir Starmer saying that thing about women getting, don't have to have cervixes. And I, yeah, I, Albert doesn't go too hard with that, but it's just inherent in whenever the campaign is going to happen, there's going to be more uh, cultural left sentiment espoused by um, Albo, and it is going to piss people off. See, this is the thing, though. I don't know if it's true with Albo because I think the thing that Albo does actually have that the rest of the Labor Party definitely doesn't have, he's definitely got his finger on the pulse more than the rest. And it's the same thing. Why? Because he grew up in fucking housing commission. He knows how bogans think. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's why he's going to move away from that. That's why he's saying nothing now because he knows that no one gives a fuck about politics. So just shut your mouth. Like Mm -hmm. he he, he does – he's got a good – finger on the pulse of Australian society. It's actually really interesting. I can't remember her name, but there is a Labor campaigner who, and she hasn't lost a single campaign that she's done. She did WA, which obviously that was just, she was going to walk that one anyway. Uh, Victoria, she was going to walk that one. The really interesting one that she did, both of them, Queensland. She won Queensland twice with a Labor government. And why? Because she's a bogan. She understands how the fucking average Australian thinks. And so mm. every time they're always trying to bring in those kind of like uni sandstony kind of ideas into the part, she's just like, no, we're not doing And in fact, what is this fucking like, you know, Scott Morrison wants to give your money to the big end of town voice. It's just like, why is the channel not? She got her own voice on it. She's got one of those like nasally twangy Shazza Ocker voices. And like that just fucking sells. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Look, ultimately, you got to appeal to the lowest common denominator, especially in Australia. You've got to drink a beer at the footy, and that can win you the highest office in the country, mm. or you got to put on a nasally bogan voice. Mm. And again, mm. it's that attitude that is... Um, Fuck you, you're not better than Yeah, me. I know, because that's what a lot of people, if they were listening to this podcast, which they wouldn't be, uh, that's how they would think. And that's why, yeah, it's just uh, I feel bad for these people who are just like pristine lawyers who then have to like tone it down immensely to appeal to just the lowest common denominator. And again, I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm better than anyone or anything like that, but it's it's sad when you when really intelligent people have to dumb their speech down. But that's me talking because I obviously really like a complex, nuanced, uh, eloquent conversation but um i understand not everyone has the time to read and some people are working extremely hard and uh it's not really due to any fault of their own it's through the circumstances uh they've been brought up in well it's just like it is pretty interesting like it goes back to 
Bob Hawke versus Paul Keating, right? Like, it's, it's very interesting about that because Bob Hawke, I think he went to Knox or some shit. I'll have to look that up again. But he was middle class. His dad was like some religious fucking, like a, a, a priest or something like that. Yeah. Um, Paul Keating, working class gutter rat from like a... Yeah, Campbelltown or some shit, or Blacktown. It's just the way you... Sp- it's it's more the attitude you give off rather than where you actually came from. Isn't it? Yeah. It's really interesting. It's mm. really, really interesting. What's well, why Tony Abbott and both... Jo- both Julie Gillard and Tony Abbott clearly toned down their uh, eloquence. They're both law graduates, extremely articulate. I've heard Tony Abbott do speeches after politics, and it's, compl- it's miles apart from what he was saying. Mm. The one thing I like is... Turnbull did say, I don't think you should have to dumb it down. I think people are smarter than they realize. And it's like, yeah, all right, I agree with that. I like that. But it didn't, you know, it lost you a lot of support. Well, see, this is the thing. Like, Turnbull had sort of the same thing as Paul Keating, which was that, look, if you are, I think that that's the whole thing, right, is that just like at the very least you have to be congruent. That is Part and parcel. That's why everyone hated Bill Shorten because he listened way too much to campaign spin doctors and stuff that were constantly just on him. Like, you can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. And Hmm. that made him just kind of stulted. It's the same thing as what happened with Tony Abbott. Like, you could just see him thinking about every word before he said it. And so everybody just turned off him very quickly. Mm -hmm. Like, he was the most hated man to have ever been elected to government. Mm. Um, I think it's just... At least Malcolm Turnbull and Paul Keating had the thing of, if they're not going to like me, they can at least respect me. Now, that's not going to win out against being liked, Mm. but it is a hell of a lot better than being distrusted. Mm. Because at least you just be like, he's a cunt, he thinks he's better than me, but he knows what's up. Which is this kind of feeling that you got from Malcolm Turnbull and um, Paul Keating, was just like, they're smarter than I am. Mm. But at least they're competent. They gave off that feeling. They they did, yeah. It's a better feeling. Um, I think we're going to wrap this one up here, but uh, I hope that's adequately answered your question of why Scott Morris is the best <laughs> prime minister. He's the best marketer that we've had in, um, in the highest level of office here in this country. Thank you for listening, guys. CrushOrganics.com, use the code Neil. And if you would like to ask a question, neilcohacker.com slash podcasts. See you next time.